And so I think there needs to be more of this conversation about empire and how empire uses military force, whether that be internal military, as in the police and law enforcement, or external military in order to maintain itself and um, and, and the various forms of um, the various forms of attack. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Greetings, everyone, and welcome. I am so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Nadia Ben Youssef. I use she and her pronouns. I am the Advocacy Director at the Center for Constitutional Rights. And tonight, on behalf of the Center for Constitutional Rights, the Institute for Policy Studies, and Haymarket Books, I am so glad to introduce Grasping at the Root, White Supremacy and the So-Called War on Terror. This is part two of a four-part series that CCR is organizing together with Haymarket Books and our partners called Just Resistance, 20 Years of Global Struggle Against the Post-9-11 Human Rights Crisis. And tonight, we've put together an extraordinary panel to dive deep, and I'm so honored to introduce our moderator for this evening, Karee Peterson-Smith, a scholar, an activist, a public intellectual, where I locate hope, uh, where I fortify my spirit, a dear friend and comrade. Karee is the Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. He researches the war on terror, the militarization of borders, the military violence that the U.S. carries out and supports, and resistance to it. He is especially committed to building solidarity with the Palestinian freedom struggle and demilitarization in the Pacific. Karee received a PhD at the Clark University Graduate School of Geography, where he wrote a dissertation on sovereignty and U.S. militarization in the Pacific. He is also a co-author of the 2015 Statement of Black Solidarity with Palestine and so much more. I was so thrilled to dream up this panel together with Curry, and he brought in extraordinary people to build and think and dream together as he does. And so this conversation is in the most capable, wonderful hands, and I'm so thrilled to turn it over to you, Curry. Thank you so much for, for leading us. Hello, what an absolute honor to be introduced by my dear friend and comrade Nadia Ben Youssef. And what an absolute honor and pleasure to host this incredible panel grasping at the root white supremacy and the so called war on terror. Uh, I just want to shout out the organizers, Haymarket Books, uh, just producing so much 
amazing, um, incredibly needed uh, resources and the Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, an amazing, amazing organization in the struggle. Um, as Nadia said, my name is Karee and I'm coming to you from Boston on Massachusetts and Wampanoag land. And I want to say up top that I know that I speak for all the sponsoring organizations of this event, that we stand in solidarity with the ongoing struggles of indigenous peoples for self-determination here across the Americas and across the world. And related, uh, I want to extend a special solidarity to the Palestinian freedom struggle every day, but especially today, which is an international day of solidarity with Palestinian human rights organizations that are under attack from Israel's latest, latest uh, moves in its ongoing colonization of Palestinian land um, and violence against Palestinian people. It is an honor to be part of this amazing and timely series organized by Haymarket and by the Center for Constitutional Rights. CCR in particular has been a voice calling attention to and resisting some of the worst abuses of the war on terror throughout uh, it, it, its, its, its time. The US torture regime, the US's prison camp at Guantanamo Bay and the many other clandestine camps, mass surveillance, detention and deportation of Muslims, the drone war of extrajudicial killing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Abuses that were not exceptions to the war, but emblematic of it. This month marks two decades of uh, the beginning of uh, the US invasion of Afghanistan and two decades of this kind of violence. And while the 20 year anniversary offers an opportunity for reflection and interrogation of the many, many dimensions of the war, we have seen far too little reflection or interrogation in the mainstream media and from American officials. On the contrary, this year's US withdrawal of ground troops from Afghanistan involved basically no conversation about the character of US operations in the country over two decades, let alone the four decades that US activity via the military and the CIA uh, have profoundly impacted Afghanistan. Virtually nothing about the torture at Bagram Air Base or the notorious salt pit CIA black site prison. Nothing about the night raids, the drone strikes, the death squads that the CIA and US special forces trained. And that remained in place after the US withdrawal. Unfortunately, I could say much more about the ongoing violence of the ever-expanding war on terror, not just in Afghanistan, but in Yemen, across Africa, and elsewhere, and the lack of a critical conversation in the US about it. As devastating as it is to reflect on this 20-year chapter of violence, the good and important news is that this story is not over. In fact, the story of the end of the war on terror has yet to be written, and it is incumbent upon people everywhere, and I feel a particular responsibility for those of us located in this place called the United States, to play our role in writing the end of that story and imagining and manifesting decades of demilitarization, of anti-racism, of deconstructing surveillance regimes, of decolonization, of decarceration, and of solidarity. On that hopeful note, it is worth mentioning that the past two decades have not only been characterized by incredible violence, but also acts of solidarity that we cannot forget or let be buried. We cannot forget the 2017 airport protests in which tens of thousands of people across the US took to airports to mobilize in solidarity with Muslims against the Muslim ban 
in a long time coming moment of mass solidarity against Islamophobia. We cannot forget the incredible 2011 uprisings across West Asia and North Africa in a region so centrally targeted by the war on terror in which masses of people sought to reshape their own societies, not only in defiance of their rulers, but in defiance of American and Western sensibilities that the people of these places are merely objects to whom history happens and that their lives will be determined by schemes imagined in Washington and not just imagined, but armed and funded by Washington. We can never forget that moment where popular forces stepped collectively onto the stage of history, educating us all in democracy and in liberation. And along those lines, I must extend special solidarity to the popular resistance uh, unfolding right now in Sudan to military rule uh, in the latest chapter of that ongoing, inspiring revolution. So let us take the occasion of the anniversary um, of the war on terror to commit and to recommit to the people of Afghanistan, of Yemen, of Iraq, of Pakistan, of Somalia, of Syria, and of the many, many places impacted by the war on terror. And that includes places uh, that have not been invaded per se, but that constitute places that have been entangled in the infrastructure of the war on terror, the struggles for demilitarization in Hawaii and in Guam, um, which we will talk about uh, today as well. In Okinawa, I could go on. And let us recommit to the peoples of Sudan and Palestine and all the places where people are resisting. I believe that part of that commitment is an interrogation, not only of the past two decades, but the histories, the systems, and ideologies that came before 9-11. These deep histories, deep structures, and deep ideologies, uh, what we have to ask ourselves, what was in place that made it so possible for the US to launch so many wars across so many countries, including uh, launching the severe repression that we saw here and continue to see in the United States. We have to ask why the US was so ready to go to war, ready both in the sense of prepared with the weapons and the infrastructure of war, but also it must be said, a population that was largely ready to accept war. And to have that kind of conversation, I am thrilled uh, to have this panel um, uh, to, 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 have, to talk about precisely those things. Uh, I'll introduce uh, each person in more depth when I get to them, but just as an overview, we have Nana Gianfi, Tiara uh, Naputi, uh, Maha Hilal and Mariam Barghouti, um, all of whom I consider comrades, all of whom I learned so much from and with in this ongoing struggle. A note about Mariam, she is, um, the plan is for her to join us from Palestine. Um, she's having some difficulty with the internet there. Um, and so we hope that she makes it. Um, and uh, with that, I wanna go ahead and start, start this amazing conversation. And I wanna start with Nana actually, and first I'll introduce her. Nana Giamfi is the executive director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, BAJI, the largest black led social justice organization representing nearly 10 million black immigrants, refugees and families living in the US. A movement attorney for the past 25 years, Nana is co-founder of Justice Warriors for Black Lives and human rights advocacy, both dedicated to fighting for human rights and black liberation. She is the current president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers and a member of the Movement for Black Lives Policy Table, 
Nana is a former professor in the Pan-African Studies Department at California State University in Los Angeles and has long been sought after uh, a sought after voice for legal and political insight into issues affecting black communities. She has appeared in documentaries and other media, including Tales of a Grim, the Grim Sleeper and Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Nana, welcome. Good to see you again. Very good to see you. And thank you. And, and thanks to the sponsors. Thanks to the panelists also who are here with me. I'm really geared up to get in this conversation. Beautiful. Wonderful. Well, let's let's get into it. And um, I'm wondering if we could start by talking about something that I think there has been, um, I mean, as, as I kind of noted up top, there's far too little interrogation of the war on terror in general, but I think very little conversation about the role that anti-Black racism uh, played in informing the launching of the kind of post 9-11 moment. And I wonder if you could speak to that, please. I'll do my best, Curry. <laughs> I'll do my best. So, you know, when we think about the war on terror, clearly uh, the conversation, especially post 9-11, um, was really focused not necessarily on Black people, really focused on Muslims, of which Black people also, you know, constitute part of that population. And so, yes, when we, and you know, talking a little bit about, you know, in terms of the current iteration, this is obviously going to include Somalia, Sudan, Chad. Uh, Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger. I mean, when we look at where AFRICOM is, right, Nigeria, all of these places um, where we see this expansion of U.S. militarism in uh, on the continent of Africa, and even including Muslims from Trinidad, um, for example, we understand that there is this particularly crispy level of attention that's paid um, to Black Muslims in this context. But when we're talking about some of the basic fundamentals, particularly when we're looking at detention deportation, when we're looking at caging, when we're looking at the machinery of mass surveillance um, and mass enforcement. We can't talk about the war on terror without talking about the so-called war on drugs, where so much of this machinery came to you know full fruition, really having been fed by the war on political black political activism in this country, particularly coming out of Cointel Pro. And so as a young attorney starting out in the early 90s uh, here in California, there were laws on the books that were describing street terrorists and speaking specifically using that language with respect to what you know later gets described as gangs or street gangs, et cetera. But this idea that there is terror that must be addressed in a militaristic way. And so when we think about the type of weaponry being used, battering rams, you know, many tanks literally rolling through black communities against the terror, which was black community members, right? People that were here, our children, our cousins, our relatives, et cetera. And the willingness with which, as evidenced in the 94 crime bill and three and 96 bills with respect to immigration, three strikes here in California. So when I first started practicing was the same year three strikes um, was enacted. And it was definitely this idea that there is this menace represented by black individuals um, that were in our communities that needed to be weeded out and at all costs and um, eliminated at all costs. And this war idea, this idea that we were at war with not countries 
or um, people who had necessarily indicated, you know, by nationality, but really identifying sort of enemy combatants without using that terminology everywhere and amongst us and setting up the machinery to make sure um, to eliminate that threat. And so there was the enforcement militarized machinery. There was the mass surveillance machinery that really comes to fruition during this time. When we look at the criminalization of black migrancy, And we have to think about the fact that the first people caged in Guantanamo Bay were Haitian asylum seekers who were coming to this country um, seeking asylum. And then we think about what we just saw at Del Rio and we can make that direct link. Right. But that's who was first. This idea of Guantanamo Bay holding people comes out of um, what was done to Haitian uh, asylum seekers at that time. And then when we look at the issues of pouring monies, this direct connection between federal monies um, that normally would go towards militarization outside and how that money also gets shelled inside, right? And becomes a normal part of what people consider needs to be done with the menace. And so we'll talk more, I'm sure, in this conversation about criminalization of the other that is rooted in the criminalization of Black people and how that plays out. But, you know, thinking really about in terms of the foundational pieces of the war on terror. This war on Black people and how the tools used against Black people, whether they be folks working in Black liberation and political prisoners, or uh, whether we're talking about so-called street organizations, how that easily began to to lay the groundwork for what we understand as the so-called war on terror um, that came post 9-11. Well, I mean, I love what you've already put on the table here. And not only are you talking about just the level of racism that, um, frankly, has been part of the fabric of, you know, this place called the United States for such a long time and the targeting of black folks in particular, really the centrality of the oppression of black people and and the repression of black resistance. Thank you for putting all that on the table. And also... Um, as part of that, a kind of, um, well, there's, there's structurally what you're talking about, the various systems of surveillance and things like that. And then there's, there's a kind of, um, I don't know, uh, I mean, it, it means that there is a population here that has been accustomed and, and kind of um, acculturated to an incredibly high level of, of those things, of surveillance, of violence, of racism. So that's extremely important. So we will be talking about that a lot. You did. You said um, that we'll get more into the question of criminalization, and I want to go there right now. You know, I wonder if you can um, dig in a little deeper about the role of mass incarceration in particular, um, and the question of criminalization. Uh, uh, you know, as as it has been kind of incubated against Black folks in particular, but its relevance for the war on terror. So, you know, when we're talking about blackness, blackness is criminalized in this country, just blackness in and of itself. And, you know, we we at this point, hopefully have all watched, you know, the 13th and have looked at slavery by another name and all kinds of um, other uh, documentaries and, and articles and books that are talking about this extent. And so the criminalization of Black people um, definitely feeds and has fed the war on terror. 
And I think that's why every once in a while they got to throw in a black person. You know, I think of NCIS Los Angeles and how, you know, they'll have like, you know, the folks, the typical sort of Middle Eastern swan folks in there. And then every once in a while, you know, LL Cool J got to be a Sudanese dude, right? Or a Chadian dude or a Nigerian dude to remind us of the fact that we're talking about terrorists who are also criminals to tie all of that together. Incredible. Well, thank you, Nana. We're going to talk more. Um, uh, I want to turn it now, though, to our second panelist, Tiara R. Naputi. Uh, Tiara is a Chamorro scholar um, from Guahan, uh, also known as Guam, who focuses on the uh, indigenous, uh, sorry, focuses on issues of indigenous movements, colonialism, and militarism in the Mariana Islands archipelago. She is currently a 2021 Mellon ACLS Scholars and Society Fellow working on uh, working with Independent Guahan, a community organization educating the island's public about sovereignty and addressing climate change as an urgent challenge um, brought about by the island's colonial political status. She has joined several delegations to testify at the United Nations, uh, special Political and Decolonization Committee, Fourth Committee, um, on the political status of Guahan. Her work has appeared in outlets such as Common Dreams, In These Times, and Latinx Spaces, and she was interviewed on RT News about the impacts of militarism and the colonial status of Guahan. She is also a new faculty member at the Department of Global and International Studies at University of California, Irvine. Congratulations on that, and welcome, Tiara. Thank you, Curry. Half a day. Greetings. Um, thanks so much for including me in this event and really for the work of this series to, um, as was already mentioned, um, to interrogate and I think hopefully creatively collaborate to dismantle white supremacy and the foundation that it's laid, especially for the unjust policies from the last 20 years, but we know even further back in the U.S. nation state history. Uh, I'm actually joining you all from Guahan or Guam right now, which is my ancestral homeland in the Mariana Islands archipelago, and it's home to the indigenous uh, Chamorro people and many other indigenous and mixed ancestry peoples. And so um, I, I was pleased in, in, <laughs> to be invited as well, because um, I'm thinking a lot about roots, and I guess we can talk about that um, as we go along, for sure. Perfect. I mean, we're so grateful um, to have you here, and this, this conversation is incomplete without you, and it's incomplete without a conversation about, um, about places like Guahan and, um, and about colonization in an ongoing sense. And I wonder if we can actually start there. Um, and maybe we can start with, um, I want to get into both the structures and the ideologies of colonization, um, but maybe we can start with the ideologies of colonization that really served as foundational and have served and continue to serve as foundational to U.S. empire, um, and uh, particularly as it pertains to the world. testing and pollution, and where we are considered here in the Mariana Islands as downwinders to that nuclear fallout and radiation. Um, and the toxicity that's associated with foreign wars or um, domestic buildup or those kinds of ideas. Really, as we think about it, um, these are areas where territories, so-called territories like Guam, um, like the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, are considered to be America's or the U.S.'s westernmost quote-unquote border, right? But our archipelago, our islands, continue to be other sites for U.S. militarization. So if we're thinking about those ideologies of, of 
colonization, it's really been foundational to U.S. empire, to maintaining the U.S. as an empire. And I want to specifically talk about that empire in terms of military bases, because while we might mark that and, you know, we could briefly just to put some time stamp on it of September 11th, 2001, it's, you know, been a longer history of the Mariana Islands being preferred by the U.S. military for its training and testing and buildup and all these security orientations that are developed in the context of this longer history of colonization, right? It's um, considered, Guam is considered to be one of the uh, longest continually colonized places in the world. And while we haven't been invaded per se, by some standards when we're talking about war and the war on terror, the U.S. national security discourses continue to provide rationales for increasing militarization, increasing military spending, and using our islands as sort of testing grounds for a lot of these different um, weapons and, and some of the same exact things that the other speakers, I'm sure, will be continuing to talk about that are used on other kinds of communities that are also racialized, right? So, um, you know, what is now considered maybe the post 11 wars, the role of military enlistment also from our region in Oceania is huge, right? Continuously supporting um, the ongoing securitization of our region, but also of other places. And we know that these wars have impacted every single population in the so-called U.S. nation state, right? But we also might not know, many don't always know, that most of the military um, service members are bearing the burden of these seemingly endless conflicts for a country that doesn't want them. Right. For um, for the U.S. In, in terms of, you know, thinking about the displacements of the people that the U.S. Mil- um, just because of the U.S. military's campaign since 2001, you know, these conservative estimates, I had to look it up again, but these numbers are staggering. So it's really a structure of colonization that, you know, there's some conservative estimates of over 37 million people that have been displaced um, because of these these wars. And so. You know, with the high enlistment rates from the region here in the Pacific, where um, members of these communities and often indigenous communities are um, globally sent abroad to to fight these wars, and then they return, and because of uh, colonial political status, they don't um, have the benefits or the support of the U.S. federal government as veterans, for example. So I. I know we also wanted to talk about the empire military basis. I think I've touched on some of that, but really what I want to say about the reason why we need to use empire as a lens and to call the United States an empire and to call it an empire of military bases. And this is not a phrase that I've come up with, but just to, to, to build off of what others have already brilliantly pointed out is that that kind of critique gives us a really important global dimension and understanding of the global reach of the U.S. military, especially because the U.S. nation state has this really great job of um, historical amnesia, right? Like acting like these are just one-off events. But really, U.S. military event intervention time and time and time again is articulated through these processes like racialization, like colonization of groups of people both in the U.S. and in its so-called political possessions like territories. So it's, it's not really a new phenomenon to think about empire, but I'd like us to all um, continue to think about what it brings to talk about empire empire in a longer history of colonialism that involves these um, sort of extraterritorial claims to power, right? Particularly in the Pacific, because for obviously over a decade now, the U.S. government and the military have started policing our borders here in Oceania. They've done those same sorts of things of trying to prevent these so-called terrorist organizations from crossing ports of entry into the 
these areas of the U.S. and the Pacific. And Guam fits in so well, unfortunately, because it's literally colonialism, right? But people that live here are maybe deemed U.S. citizens in that very narrow legal sense. But empires don't have citizens. They have subjects. Right. And we are absolutely a place that is under the the thumbprint um, of the U.S. colonial control as its subjects, where we can't vote for the commander in chief. um, But but really, if we recognize that. militarism is constituting and founding that institutional basis for the ideology of empire, then we can try to start to critique and continue to critique as many have been doing how those connections um, are made and then how we can um, push forward to, ch- to challenge that Im- imperialism. Beautiful. You know, again, so essential, um, which, which you're, what you're laying out here, I think really essential for understanding um, not only the past 20 years, but really understanding something about this world that we live in, and in particular, something about this this project called the United States. Um, um, I want to ask briefly if you could say just a word more about Guahan in particular um, and where it fits in um, kind of structurally in these wars. You know, um, folks may or may not know that Guahan, you know, about a third of the island is militarized as part of, you know, is, is claimed by the U.S. Department of Defense in particular. Um, and so there are bases on, on Guahan. And I just wonder if you could just say a word about about those and their kind of role and about and of the island and the ways that the island is entangled um, in U.S. imperial activities. Yeah, and thank you for that. I will say there's an ongoing massive military buildup project that has been underway since the U.S. government and the Japanese government made this these this bilateral agreement around and announced it around 2005. And so this again comes out of some of that security discourse that we're still seeing from 2001, right? So currently in 2021, the U.S. Um, Department of Defense um, does occupy. They occupy about 30% of the island's uh, landmass just in Guam. They also are under um, construction projects right now for a massive military buildup that would move about 5,000 Marines and their dependents from Frutenma military base in Okinawa to our island. And so a lot of these construction projects have been ramped up during the time of COVID, especially with the heightened military budgets um, and expanded military budgets. And it also includes other islands in our archipelago. So it's actually this massive project that many people don't know that it's impacting the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana, um, which includes includes, you know, plans to convert uh, two thirds of another island, the island of Tinian, which is where the um, the uh, U.S. planes that launched the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki departed from that island of Tinian. Right. So, again, all these layers of history. Um, but thinking about converting two thirds of the island of Tinian um, and, and annexing other islands that are considered uninhabited by the Department of Defense um, as part of this sprawling military training po- complex. And unfortunately, as as you said in your opening remarks, there's so many things that we could add to this list. Um, and I don't want to inundate people with facts, but I do want people to recognize that this is a reason why we have to see these connections um, because the structural issues is uh, it, that are happening in Guam and throughout the Mariana Archipelago is that, you know, not just the Marines transfer, not just their plans to, you know, um, dredge our coral and not just their plans to, to have, a, you know, training areas and amphibious war fighting, but it's also in impacting other places like Hawaii, like Australia, and anywhere in between, um, we're seeing that actually as the 
military has said that they are decreasing military presence from Okinawa to come to places like Wuhan. They're actually ramping up incre- uh, militarization in, in a lot of other places, right? Currently in Hinoko, they're doing expansive base projects. In the region, the northern part of Okinawa, the region of Takai, they're clear-cutting the Yanbaru forest to make way for helipad landing um, areas and jungle warfare training. And so when you think about the U.S. military that's situating Guam in particular, we have to also draw those connections. I always um, try to think about that because it's more than just land that's being impacted in one place, right? What happens in one part of um, an island impacts the whole archipelago. Our oceans connect us all. So, you know, um, one thing that I would like to, if I if I can, I know you said give me just a little bit more, but um, I wanted to mention that um, the 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 current issue that we're facing right now, on top of that thirty percent that you mentioned, is that there is con- there are multiple construction projects for the newest U.S. military base, the first Marine Corps base to be open, I think since 1952. It's called U.S. Camp um, U.S. Marine Corps Base Camp Bloss, and in addition to these firing ranges that they're trying to build very close to our our northern Guam um, aquifer, which has supplies 90% of the water, the fresh drinking water, very important to have fresh drinking water anywhere, but especially on an island. Um, They're clearing and clear-cutting our limestone forest, which takes thousands of years to to grow. And now there's all these uh, reports coming out after the fact um, for our community in a lot of ways about burial sites, ancient burial sites that have human remains, that have other artifacts from our, you know, thousands and thousands of year history that are just being destroyed by the construction project so that the military can continue to ramp up um, this base construction. And so I want to say that because those are absolutely structural issues and they also come from the the decisions that are made, you know, in the U.S. Congress, for example, where they're literally (laughs) increasing the budget year in, year out um, and have some of the highest inflated military um, budgets in the the world, you know, accounting for like 39% of global military expenditures. So, it's complicated. It's it's layered, and it's really difficult because we don't have free prior or informed consent as a community here, specifically um, because of our political status that is colonial. Wow. Well, thank you so much. And it's such an important. Um, it's a it's a call to all of us to pay attention when the U.S. talks about waging war. To pay attention not only to the countries where the U.S. deploys. Um, forces for combat, you know, countries like Afghanistan, countries like Yemen and Iraq, and, you know, the many others, unfortunately, but also other places that are entangled in those operations. Um, And we should pay attention not only because of their entanglement, but because of the impacts of that on the local populations, as in Wuhan. So thank you so much. Um, And uh, sorry, Curry, I forgot to say, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to not include this. You know, there is hope, (laughs) Um, but there's also an important point that does relate to Afghanistan, right? Which is that that colonial imposition of our um, status here, you know, erases that possibility that we could be radically hospitable towards, say, for example, refugees for um, these foreign wars that the U.S. has waged. This is a refugee crisis in the world of a foreign war not our making, right? Um, And Guam has been used as a sort of literal geographical distance since the Vietnam era. And I know you and I know um, some colleagues that have been working on those um, refugee resettlement things. But, you know, um, that sort of propagandistic cloak of the U.S. empire to distance itself um, and to just put people from, you know, these places into wherever they can, whether it be Palestine or Guam or over the over time that these places have been used um, as sort of 
uh, settling grounds for other um, populations that are impacted by these wars. And so there's been a lot of call for that as well to use um, to to place um, refugees in, in Guam. And then we wouldn't really have a say. And I want to I want to mention that because um, I think that's another impact of how um the, the 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 racialization and the refugee uh, resettlement situation um, kind of makes it so that uh, people feel like they have to um, decide whether or not they want to be hospitable to people or you know to, to put in those situations. But years after the Vietnam War, and I'm sure this will continue again with uh, with what's going on in Afghanistan, our veterans are also still denied compensation um, for radiation exposure and all these other kinds of health impacts. So we're absolutely entangled in that, and I think that's um, a really important point that I wanted to make sure I didn't um, forget to mention. So th- thank yeah. you. Yeah. No, I'm so I'm so grateful you said that. And it's just it's it's you know for folks who who are not yet familiar with what's happening in Guahan, like don't don't sleep on what's going on in the Pacific because it really is it's it's not only important that you know, these struggles for self-determination in places like Wuhan throughout the Pacific, you know, struggles against colonization deserve our support just because people deserve to be free. And also because the stories of what is happening, you know, and that kind of corner of U.S. Um, militarization and colonization is actually, I think, so central uh, to understanding what's going on. So thank you for that. Um, and with that, you, you know, if we're talking about, uh, again, the various things that are central to the um, kind of operations of these wars and that are foundational to uh, these wars, we have to talk about Islamophobia, of course. And um, uh, Maha Halal, Dr. Maha Halal is an amazing person to speak to that, along with so many other things. And so let me introduce Maha Um Maha, Dr. Maha Halal is a researcher and writer on institutionalized Islamophobia and author of the forthcoming book, um, which I've pre-ordered and you should too, Innocent Until Proven Muslim, Islamophobia, the War on Terror, and the Muslim Experience Since 9-11. Her writings have appeared in Vox, Al Jazeera, Middle East Eye, Newsweek, Business Insider, and Truth Out. She is also co-director of the amazing Justice for Muslims Collective, where she focuses on political consciousness and narrative shift programming. Dr. Halal earned a doctorate in May 2014 from the Department of Justice, Law, and Society at American University in Washington, D.C. The title of her dissertation is Too Damn Muslim to be Trusted, The War on Terror, and the Muslim American response. Maha, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much, Fouri, for having me, for inviting me on this panel. And you forgot to mention our connection, which is that um, I was the Michael Ratner uh, Middle East Fellow at Institute for Policy Studies um, before my friend Fouri came along. Maha was the inaugural Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow <laughs> at the Institute for Policy Studies. So shout out to Maha for paving the way uh, for, for, for me um, among, among various ways she has paved. Um, okay, so uh, good to see you again. And yeah, Islamophobia has been absolutely, and it remains absolutely central to the war on terror. And I just, I wonder if you could talk about about the kind of like foundation, like what was happening foundationally when we think about Islamophobia, like what was happening, what was in place before 9-11 that made it so that, um, you know, that, that made it so that Muslims could be targeted in this way. And I'll just, I'll just say by way of illustrating the question, 
Um, you know, I happen to remember the day of, of 9-11, um, 9-11 attacks and kind of moving through space and overhearing conversations. And I remember overhearing um, this horrendous conversation that really sticks with me. That is, um, you know, one person saying to another, I hope we just bomb the hell out of them. Mm-hmm. And I turned and I said, bomb who? And she said, them, the people that did this. And I think about what it means to have so many people in this country who essentially had a, you know, fill in the blank. I'm ready to go to war. Um, so there's a lot to say about that. But I wonder if you could speak to how Muslims were um, so easily targeted and, uh, you know, um, the U.S. government was able to write Muslims in that blank. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm so glad you asked this question um, because. You know, after 9-11, we would frequently hear the phrase, you know, um, post 9-11, right? And that was meant to distinguish what was happening to Muslims from what happened prior to 9-11. And I've also used this wording and phrasing and in many ways, in many cases, have continued to use it to sort of um, distinctly isolate what was different. But Nevertheless, this kind of framing about this post 9-11 world for Muslims kind of falsely gave the perception, right, that there was nothing in place, that what happened to Muslims after 9-11 was just a matter of what the U.S. government at the time, Bush administration, wanted to implement and the ways in which the United States government was going to and in fact did target Muslims. But as we know, and that's why this conversation is so important, This system of oppression, right, goes back to when enslaved African Muslims were brought to the United States, right? And when we kind of look at that history, what we see is that, in fact, the enslaved African Muslims, right, part of the control and punishment was to coerce them into converting into Christianity, right? And so from the beginning, right, we already have this construct that Christianity is civilized, that Islam is not, and that's continued to be the construction of Islam, right, and Muslims that we aren't civilized. And this is from the very beginning, right? And at the time, right, the slaveholders wanted to believe that the enslaved Muslims had largely abandoned their religion, even though there continued to be writings, even though there were practices, you know, that they still adhere to as being Muslim in as much as they could. But what this contributes to, right, is not only that there was Islamophobia, clearly, obviously fundamentally rooted in anti-Blackness, But this idea of white Christian hegemony. And when we look at the legacy and the ways in which Islamophobia has played out, what's often lost is specifically Christian hegemony, right? Whiteness is not just whiteness without a religion. Whiteness has been about whiteness and Christianity. They are one in the same. And so, for example, when we look much later on, centuries later, at the immigration policies and specifically the era of time where citizenship was contingent on whiteness, right? 
part of what was factored into whiteness was being Muslim, right? So we had whiteness in opposition to Islam and Muslim, even though they are different categories of things, right? One is this racial hierarchy and the other is a religion. And obviously that serves to further demonstrate, right? That Islam is not just about a religion. And what has often made Islamophobia itself so complicated is that Muslims are such a diverse population, right? So the ways in which black Muslims are targeted is different, for example, than the ways in which Arab Muslims are targeted, right? And there are ways that whiteness is constructed as something inherent in and of itself, right? For example, it's good, it's pure, it's benevolent, right? It is the uh, epitome of what it means to be civilized. And then on the other hand, you understand the construction of whiteness as existing in opposition to the other systems of oppression. And that is how Islamophobia has often been allowed to perpetuate. It's because everything that Islam and Muslims are is everything that whiteness isn't, right? And what Christianity isn't. And so there's this repeated conflation of whiteness and Christianity and this idea that that Muslim is just a category of being, that there are no other identities embedded within being Muslim. But we see again the first sort of example in the ways in which enslaved Muslims were treated in this country. And we also see how they paved the path, the resistance, right, for Muslims that came thereafter. So the immigration era, right, like I've spoken about, um, in which, again, citizenship was deeply rooted in whiteness. There are numerous cases that we can point to, right? Even where, for example, Arab Christians were denied citizenship because of the, the way that they were constructed as being sort of similar to Arab Muslims. So again, what the barrier to citizenship was was the Muslimness. And in the course of sort of immigration, obviously there, there have been periods of time where different populations, right, different communities, different groups are being targeted differently. And it's a matter of how is whiteness being leveraged in a particular way towards different groups? And how is in this case, how is Islam being constructed? And again, there's always been this conflation, right? Um, you know, when we think about Orientalism, right? The idea of Orientalism, the ideas of being Arab means you're Muslim, which is are not true, right? And that idea serving to also minimize the ways in which we understand the diversity of the Muslim community. That's why a lot of times after 9-11, right, our understanding of who the victims of U.S. state targeting or seem to be Arab, the, the sort of this caricature and this image of Arabs, when in fact, right, we know how heavily targeted Black Muslims were throughout the war on terror and have been, right? And as Nana, you know, very uh, articulately spoke to the idea that 
you know, this is sort of it. A lot of this war on terror morphed from the war on drugs. And again, because of this conflation, when we look again over the history of, uh, of sort of what was happening vis-a-vis U.S. state policy and U.S. intervention in the Arab world, right, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on, this conflation of what Arab and Muslim means and also bringing that back to the communities in the United States that were Arab, that were Muslim, or at least perceived to be Muslim. And we have a lot of different um, ways that they're being targeted, right? Like we think about now in the post 9-11 era, we think about how acute the targeting has been, especially in the realm of federal terrorism prosecutions. But that was also something that preceded 9-11, right? And it was very much connected to U.S. foreign policy abroad, specifically in the Arab world. And in fact, one of the reasons why the government would target Arabs, Arab Muslims in particular, is if they spoke out against U.S. policies in their, con- in their home countries. So we already see this sort of curbing of free speech, right? And silencing the Muslim voice, at least as it pertained to Muslims who identified as Arab. And it goes without saying, right, when you're talking about um, Islamophobia, when people, when Muslims are recognized as such, the impacts trickle, right? So when Black Muslims are targeted in a particular way, right? There is the anti-Blackness part of it, right? There's, it's very rooted in that. But there's always with the Islamophobia part, right? What are we talking about with Islamophobia, right? We're talking about a particular animus towards Islam, antagonism towards Islam, where Islam is constructed as barbaric, as backwards, where Muslims are seen as inherently violent, right? And these are constructions that are then imposed on top of whatever other identity a Muslim person already holds. And one of the the things that I keep thinking about, although this was like 20 years ago now, right, was after 9-11, there was a a prominent white sheikh. His name is Hamza Yusuf. And um, after the attacks, he became sort of the, the spokesperson for Muslims and Islam. And... You know, when I think about that in retrospect, the conclusion I come to is that the reason he was the spokesperson was because he was a white Muslim. Because if they had shown on TV, for example, about a black Muslim saying this is not who we are, blah, 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 which whatever, that's a whole side note conversation. <laughs> People would not hear it, right? They would only hear it that message from the racialized part of the person, right? The Muslim part. So Sheikh Hamza Yusuf was his name. Um, What his role was, was to get Americans to understand Islam or to at least be less fearful of it because, you know, who wouldn't be scared of Islam after the rhetoric uh, and the ways in which policies were perpetuated, right? Like that was intentional. Was for Americans to see it through a white American just like that. 
And this white American just so happened to be the right person because he was invited by President Bush to pray for the country. Um, he, after 9-11, talked about the ways in which Muslims were complicit because we have always been centered in this discourse of anger, right? That's another trope about Muslims, right? You see someone who's Muslim who's angry, like you absolutely, you, like there's no way that you could find any explanation for it. They just wake up angry and then the rest of the day continues and it just builds on that anger. And so that to me was sort of a defining moment and one that I don't think non-Black Muslims really understood as much at the time for what it was, right? And Black Muslims surely knew exactly what it was at the time, right? <laughs> and so the rest of us, you know, not to generalize, but some of us, right, had to understand that in retrospect, that people had to see Islam as white in that particular moment in order for them not to freak out, right? Because you're living amongst these people. And, you know, lastly, just to go back quickly, and this is the last thing I'll say is, you know, a lot of the post 9-11 discourse was informed by Samuel Huntington and Bernard Lewis and the likes of them, right? Where they talk about the divisions between civilizations, right? Or, and in particular, Islam. Um, Huntington wrote, of course, that Islam has bloody borders, right? Not that other countries and quote civilizations do as well, but Islam is sort of uniquely, has a uniquely bloody history. And Bernard Lewis wrote a piece in 1990 that was called The Roots of Muslim Rage. And basically, if I was to summarize it, is that we can't understand the roots of Muslim rage because they're just inherently angry. And, you know, colonialism ended. So like, why are they still mad? Right. And so these discourses, as stupid and trivial as they sound, right, when people like us are reading them, formed this way of understanding Islam and Muslims as violent and deeply violent, right? We're insatiably violent. There is nothing you can do to curb our violence because there is no explanation for it. And really solidifying that dichotomy between Islam and the West, right? And keep in mind that we're continuing with this idea that Islam is this thing that doesn't have a category. So it can always exist in opposition to a nation state. It can exist in opposition to a racial category. Whatever you want Islam to exist in opposition to, it can. Because fundamentally, Islam is a problem and it's incompatible with everything. And I guess I would say if I was to summarize my points, that would be it. <laughs> that Islam has just generally been deemed as incompatible with whatever you want it to be incompatible with. Word. Thank you so much, Maha. Um, there's more to say. We're actually going to take a little pause right now. Um, but in that time, please, if you are watching on YouTube, go ahead and drop your questions in that chat, uh, questions for our panelists and our, our people working behind the scenes at Haymarket will funnel those to me. Um, so go ahead and sit tight and we'll see you in a sec. Okay, we are back. And um, let me just start by saying thank you so much, Maha, who covered so many things, including the racialization of Muslims so that 
Muslims are perceived um, or racialized in certain ways. Black Muslims are not, don't fit into that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then for putting Orientalism um, on the table and um, this notion of, frankly, a, a kind of crusade crusader <laughs> politics, um, uh, which I think we absolutely have to talk about when we talk about the war on terror. Um, and then the last piece is just what you, when you're talking about the characterization, um, the Islamophobic characterization of Muslims as essentially violent and, and just essentially um, problematic, essentially broken. I mean, I think about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and you know, after two decades of very little conversation about what the U.S. was doing in Afghanistan, all of a sudden we're talking about the corruption and the problems with Afghanistan. Not in a way that is, in, is at all related to the U.S. invasion and occupation, but as the, there's something essentially corrupt, essentially violent about uh, this nation. So thank you so much for that. Let me say, before we move on to the next phase of our conversation, just a word about Mariam Barghouti, um, who tried to join us and um, because of internet issues uh, where she is in Palestine was not able to. Um, but I just want to put on the table, you know, we have to talk about Palestine when we talk about the question of, again, why um, and how. The U.S. was so ready to uh, to go to war, to declare a war on terror. Uh, the notions of who a terrorist is, um, the notion of what it means to be fighting terrorism were absolutely informed by Israel and the U.S. relationship with Israel, which the U.S. really sees as on the frontier of the war on terror. Immediately after 9-11, um, Israel declared Yasser Arafat, our bin Laden, and so on, and so on, and so on. So I just wanted to put that on the table. Um, okay, so uh, again, I'm going to put out a call for folks, um, you know, who are watching on YouTube. If you have questions, go ahead and drop them in the chat for our panelists. And then um, I want to go to Maha uh, actually had a, a question to put on the table for the panel. Yeah, so, you know, my question is, um, is I think panels like these are excellent interventions and ways in which organizers and other movement folks can come together and and really think about the connections in the ways in which injustice is perpetuated and inflicted on our various communities through the same fundamental structure. And my question is for um, Tierra and Nana, how do we take this information and knowledge and sort of think about moving it forward, right? So beyond this panel, what can we do to really make sure our understanding in various movement spaces, takes all of our movement experiences, takes all of this knowledge into account. And how do we really get, for example, if we think of empire, right? The ways in which that one thing manifests across the board, regardless of what social justice issue we're talking about. What do we do with that? And, and how do we move forward with this information? So just taking a little bit of a crack at it, I mean, I'm always rooting all that we do in power building with our communities, right? And organizing our communities, folks on the ground and having these conversations. And I think about, for example, here in Los Angeles, um, which is, of course, Tongva land, um, we have an organization called Vigilant Love. Vigilant, sorry, Vigilant Love. Got to speak the Queen's English properly. Vigilant Love, which is an organization in which you have Muslims who are working with 
um, the Japanese communities, um, in particular folks who have that history of internment, of detention, and figuring and talking about the issue of detention. And so therefore also combining with black folks and black migrants, what does it mean, this this detention, right? And deportation, separation. And so those conversations have met and turned into real working together, pushing in terms of organizing as well as policy. And so I think there needs to be more of this conversation about empire and how empire uses military force, whether that be internal military as in the police and law enforcement or external military in order to maintain itself and, um, and, and the various forms of, um, the various forms of attack. So whether you're talking about like my sister, Angie Ritchie, and what does it mean for police to engage in gender violence? And then we look at the ways in which the United States military equals gender violence wherever it is on the planet, right? And so making those kinds of connections in all the areas and spheres. Yeah, thank you for that question too, because um, I think that's really important, right? These community works, um, community organizations. Um, Independent Guahan is one that I'm working with here on the ground. Another one that um, that uh, I want to mention is Protehi Latexen or Save Retidian in English. And that group has been doing some of the same work that uh, I mentioned in terms of drawing connections with places like Okinawa, right? The um, live fire training range that's being built in the northern part of our island that's impacting our freshwater aquifer is not very different than the same strategies we're seeing in northern part of Takai with clear cutting of the of the Yanburu forest, right? And so to see those connections and to build um, power with, with communities in um, seemingly disparate places, right? Um, and we have a lot to learn from each other, as well as thinking about um, the connections we can build with folks in Turtle Island that are um, impacting these decisions, right? I know the work of the Red Nation is another place that has given space for Protehi Latexan to talk more specifically specifically about decolonization. But of course, as we've already mentioned, I think one of the ways that we can really also continue to take this knowledge and information into action is to bring it to those structures. I know it feels overwhelming and huge, but those military, the global military spending budget is um, another thing that maybe like Karee said, we shouldn't sleep on, right? The fact that during a time of um, global crisis, the real only thing that people came together for in the U.S. Congress was to increase its own military budget, even more so than what was requested by the Biden administration, right? So I think if we're going to talk about um, how trillions of dollars have been seamlessly, you know, senselessly spent on the war on terror, what 20 years in Afghanistan and, and all these horrific and violent costs of war in all these different places um, have done is displaced the need for um, recognizing how climate justice and all these other issues, the pandemic, um, global health are continuously deferred, right? And people power makes the difference. Right. Um, to be able to 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 say, no, F-35 warplanes um, and nuclear new nuclear weapons are not what, we, what our our world needs. Right. And we're the ones that I think um, can really learn a lot from each other with these different um, group group work and connection and to also then um, to build power, even if um, it doesn't mean going through the traditional structures of of power. Right. Like I'm not necessarily saying everyone needs to get out and do particular civic duties, because I think sometimes those, those also hold us back from helping each other's struggles. Um, sure, that's one strategy, but I think there's a lot of other strategies that we can we can build connection and community across. Can I quick add um, 
a response to my own question. Do it. <laughs> but, um, you know, the thing that I focus on a lot is narrative. And um, there are so many problematic narratives that we use in the social justice space generally, right? Um, for example, when the Muslim ban was implemented, um, you know, there was this consistent liberal progressive voice that said, this is not who the United States is, right? And um, obviously, a lot of us knew that that wasn't true. And so when you're espousing these narratives, like, who, like, who are you actually including in them, right? Whose story matches that this is not who the United States is, right? So who are you talking to? But I think, um, so when we're talking about collaborations and being in community with different folks from different spaces, it's about learning their stories. So when you use or think about a problematic narrative, you know that that's not true, right? Um, and I think that that's really important. And I think the other thing is, you know, a lot of times when we talk about war, um, and especially the war on terror, you know, the cost of the war has been emphasized in terms of dollars. And I think those of us in this space, we're asking for more than that. Because unfortunately, we live in a country that inflicts massive state violence across the globe, right? At the same time, the most important pe thing that people care about, for example, when the cost of war study came out, was how much money was spent, not how many lives were destroyed, not how many people can't wake up and see their parents or their sons or their daughters or their loved ones, but the fact that it costs a lot of money. And so I think one of the interventions is working together again and sharing our stories and building community. And I mean community in the way that the United States doesn't know how to build. I don't know what community means here, but the one that I'm used to when I go to the mosque, for example, um, and, and really, you know, listening to each other and being part of the way we tell the story collectively, because if we want collective liberation, right, we have to have a collective story to move us there. Wow, really, I really appreciate that, especially in light of the notion of um, the this is an us uh, kind of um, narrative that we got, particularly under the last uh, presidential administration. And, you know, when you're talking about a kind of like open invitation of the people who are marginalized, you know, by U.S. empire to contribute to like an actual honest uh, accounting um, of, you know, the history and the current reality of, of what this country is, then they're like, this isn't us. The question of who us is, <laughs> you know, I think that that's a way to, to, to counter that. I also just want to, if, if, um, if, if, if I may um, respond to the, the question that um, briefly to the question that Maha posed, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I just want to hold up a really inspiring example, I think, of, um, you know, folks acting with um, an understanding, uh, you know, of kind of ways that empire works and divides us that kind of inform those acts. And it came actually in August when the U.S. was in the process of its, you know, um, wild and haphazard withdrawal from Afghanistan, when many Afghan folks were seeking refuge to, um, uh, you know, the United States, um, you know, that this actually coincided with an earthquake in Haiti, you know, and and um, another, uh, you know, at the same time as after a lot of pushing, the U.S. government said, OK, we've got a whole operation to get Afghans out of Afghanistan and get them to the U.S. At the same time, the U.S. is 
working on, once again, trying to keep Haitians out of the U.S. And I just want to shout out a couple of orgs, you know, Afghans for a Better Tomorrow um, said, we actually stand with our Haitian relatives, um, you know, and we're in solidarity just because we're we're demanding and, um, you know, winning uh, refuge for Afghan folks doesn't mean that we're that, that we're going to turn our back on Haitian folks. And then Haitian Bridge, um, you know, another org uh, said, yeah, <laughs> and, and actually we're, we're with Afghan folks, um, too. So I, I was really inspired by that kind of thing that, as Maha pointed out, you know, on our side, yeah, when we're, when we're organizing against these incredible forms of violence, I think so central to to the violence is actually dividing us. And so it can be really challenging to to um, to build those bridges. And so it's really exciting and urgent when we see them um, being built. So with that, we're actually coming to um, the, the, the close of our time together. And I want to offer um, our panelists, you know, an opportunity for some closing thoughts to, to, to leave us with when thinking about these questions of, um, you know, again, grasping at the root and, and what underlies uh, you know, the, the war and terror and all the violence and the, the racism um, that is sort of wrapped up in it. So um, I don't know, maybe we could we could go. Um, I don't know. Do we want to go? Uh, anyway, anybody want to any, any takers at final final thoughts? And if not, I I can get us organized. What if we do we want to go in um, like reverse order? We can go Maha, Tierra, Nana. Is that cool? one another right is because fundamentally we need to know how this machine operates because it's operating the same it may have new technologies but it's about knowing how it operates in the arab world knowing how it operates in haiti right knowing how it operates in uh, pakistan wherever it is how are we going to know and if there is a way we can understand a war ending particularly a u.s war what would that mean right? What would we need to see? And what is the world we want to create that embodies the idea that a war has ended? And for me, I have not seen anything like that, at least in my lifetime and, and, and the limited history that I do know of this country. Wars simply have not ended. They just build on new wars to target more communities. Wow. Thank you, Maha. Um, Tiara? Uh, thank you for that. Um, you know, I'm also going back to that title, right? I think about our roots. Um, in the Chamorro language, uh, the term for root is hale, and we use the term haleta or our roots quite a bit. So to grasp at our roots is really crucial, but it's also really collective, our roots. Um, and so particularly when it comes to what we've been talking about, um, for me with regard to US empire as a you know empire of military bases, the global scale um, and the local very um, felt real experience of the violence that it inflicts on not only individuals, but communities and, and our generation and future generations, right? Right. I don't I don't even think the U.S. has a history of being um, not in war for more than like 20 years since the Independence Day or whatever. Um, 
But thinking about all those structures means that we also have to see where it manifests, right? And, you know, coming from the localized, huge oceanic space, um, it's it's still recognizing that in, you know, these Pacific places that are otherwise deemed part of the U.S., um, they have so much to share and also learn. You know, I've learned a lot. And I'd say the community work of organizations that have already been mentioned, um, and I'll shout out again to, to some of them that are, you know, looking for ways and are still doing um, things to sustain one another um, and to and to sustain each other toward genuine security, right? Like to imagine something different that would include peace and genuine security and solidarity that's sustainable for all of us. Um, so those organizations like Protehi Latexan, Save Vertidian, Independent Guahan, and um, one that I don't remember if I mentioned earlier is a is an indigenous um, feminist organization, Ihagan Famalawan Guahan. Um, and all of these are based here, but what they're doing is the the work of forging those creative, collaborative um, solidarity networks and and really trying to bring critique to bear as an international sort of global scale of a network of people that can learn from each other against um, to, to figure out ways to strategize against this kind of global empire of militarism, right? And so co-conspiring together, thinking about our roots, Haleta, um, co-creating the world that we want. Um, you know, i I feel like I gave us a laundry list of all the problems. Um, and so at the end, I'd, I'd really think that grasping at the root means doing so together. And so next time, um, you know, when we're thinking about this, we're, we're talking more about the just resistance and the successes as well, because um, I think that's an important thing to remind ourselves. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Tiara. Nana? So again, Thank you, Haymarket Books, and thank you from Institute for Policy Studies, and thank you to CCR, Center for Constitutional Rights, and to you, Corey, and to you, Tiara, and Maha. It's been a great, great conversation, um, and thanks for all the folks who, who watched. And I'm going to invite us to really um, do the work that's been described by our panelists and also doing the work of redefining what it is to be human and really doing that reflection, right? Because a lot of this is based upon a, def a defining that's been done outside of us of who is human beings, who has worth, who has value um, and who does not. And what does it mean to have value as a human, right? And beyond their sense of economic economics, beyond their sense of production, beyond their sense of anything, what does it mean to be human and to be able to live as human beings on this planet? Um, and that's gonna require some deconstruction um, it's going to require decolonization. It's going to require dismantling. It's going to require a lot of D words um, to make that happen. But we, the, the, we do all of that for not if we don't really look at how are we forming community as we're engaged in the abolition of all of those systems that um, harm, that traumatize, that kill. Um, such that we can actually produce and, and operate in a world that is alive and that is focused on living and thriving growth and development in ways um, that are healing and restorative. So, you know, but that's going to require us to, to do some shift that is deep and necessary. Wow. Well, speaking of deep and necessary, you know, I told you all <laughs> up top that we were going to go deep. And uh, yeah, we're talking about reimagining what it means to be a human. We're talking about 
our collective roots, like seeing our collective roots. And we're talking about what it means to end wars and not just end wars, but end war. So big gratitude to this amazing, amazing panel um, of folks. And um, I want to, again, reiterate just gratitude to Haymarket Books for all you do every day, um, but particularly for this uh, amazing panel. Um, uh, gratitude to the Center for Constitutional Rights, again, for your incredible work all the time, but for putting together this amazing series and inviting us to be part of it. And gratitude to um, where I work, the Institute for Policy Studies, also uh, a sponsor of uh, this, this amazing um, event. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Nana, Tierra, and um, Maha. Um, shout out, by the way, to the people who have made this happen. Shout out to Sean at Haymarket. Um, shout out to Christine, our person doing the captioning um, during this event, and, and gratitude to all of you all for watching. So with that, stay safe, take care of each other, stand up with each other, and remember that the purpose of grasping at the root when we're talking about things like empire and racism, the purpose of grasping at the root is to uproot uh, those things. At the end of the day, it's just a conversation if we're not talking about actually ending these things. And I think that we need to take up Maha's challenge of actually imagining what it means to end a war and do it in a way such that it doesn't just transform into another war, uh, but actually end US empire. Thank you, gratitude, and solidarity. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.